Evil 1-1, we have a visual on your position. We have enemy movement 300 meters to your south. Enemy troops in the open. Small arms and RPGs, you are clear to engage. Roger, Evil CP, we are TIC. I say again, we are troops in contact, requesting air support. Stand by for call for fire. Solid copy. Troops in contact. Be advised, air is red at this time. Repeat, air is a no-go. You're on your own. Dig in and give them hell. Give them hell. Give them hell. Welcome to the Dogs of War. Hosted by Stephen Houston. All right. Been a little while. Life gets tough. So, glad to be back. We've got a really special episode today. The podcast is brought to you by Alpine Arms. Alpine Arms is a veteran-owned and operated gun store and training source located in Eagle, Colorado. They specialize in training opportunities from pistol, rifle, night vision, tactical medicine, long range, all while offering the Colorado experience. All of our instructors come from the military special operations community and law enforcement special units. Podcast is also brought to you by Hard-Headed Veterans, also known as HHV. HHV makes ballistic helmets and accessories, and it's a veteran-owned and operated company. They sent me one of their Gen 2 ATE ballistic helmets, and uh, I really dig it. It's a level 3 super high-cut helmet. And it's the most comfortable helmet I've worn. I've been out of the military for a while. I'm sure they got more high-speed shit nowadays, but priced around 400 bucks, it's the best value on the market. They also have a level four up armor plate system that will make your helmet rifle fire rated. Use the code Dogs of War, all one word, at checkout for a discount. Also, if you haven't already done so, please rate and leave a review for the podcast, even if it's only one word. Really helps us. So this isn't free, and um, if I want to continue to grow this, it's going to need some uh, help from you guys. All right, my guest today is a 27-year retired Marine Sergeant Major infantry type. This was a really big privilege and an honor for me because this was somebody who I looked up to very, very much, and uh, some of the things he said and instilled in me, I still remember to this very day. He's been a drill instructor. He's done 10 deployments, a couple combat deployments. He uh, was our, my company guns. He was weapons platoon sergeant previous to that. He was the follow series company gunny at Paris Island as I was going through at the same time. But on the other side, I was in lead series and uh, general American badass. Please give it up. For the great and powerful Lance Ufnek, Sergeant Major type. Let's hit it. All right, we are live. Got a very special guest today. This one's uh, pretty huge for me. That's a gentleman that I looked up to very heavily uh, during my time in the Marine Corps, or a short time, or I guess about the, the last half. But um, without further ado, Mr. Sergeant Major Lance Ufnek, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me and look forward to our conversation today, man. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for doing this. So we'll just, uh, we'll just jump right in. Where, uh, where did you grow up? 
So yeah, I grew up in Louisiana and the city of Louisiana, Baton Rouge. And I stayed there for most of my, until I was 18. Now I would tell you that lived in a uh, family, middle, middle income. My dad was a wastewater guy. That's where he did most of his life that I can remember. My mom was a caretaker, took care of uh, a lot of children in a place called Kindercare most of my life that I can remember. And they did that throughout when I was 18. So I had everything I needed in life and uh, enjoyed every bit of Louisiana. Uh, it was a great place to grow up as a child. It was a lot of structure as far as both my parents are very strict and the structure of the, the parents around my house and my youth growing up definitely helped mold me as a kid. Uh, I had a lot of youth opportunities with gentlemen and ladies that just groomed me growing up. And it, it was a good opportunity, but Baton Rouge, Louisiana will always have a, a place in my heart. Didn't go back there, but appreciated every bit of it as a child. Yeah, I, re I remember one of the times you were giving us a speech when you were company guns, and uh, I remember you were like, you suck head. <laughs> you asked somebody that, and I I kind of looked at I was like, what the fuck did he just say? But then I realized <laughs> what you were talking about. Uh, you definitely got that Cajun, uh, that Cajun edge, man. I dig it. But um, did, you, uh, did you do any kind of sports or uh, any kind of organized activities like that growing up? You know, so I played baseball in the summer and I played, I tried out for football, but I was a small kid and just didn't work out for me. So I think that really started my life of service to other people because, because I didn't play football. I really started with the medical side and just taking care of the team. Gotcha. So I traveled everywhere, everywhere with them and was just there as a sports equipment slash medical guy. But the big thing I, I did in high school was run cross country. That also helped out with my Marine Corps career because of the amount of running that we do. Oh, for sure. So those, mm -hmm. those are the sports that I played. The team aspect of baseball, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed having something to do over the summer. But uh, good times. But, yeah, real, more of a support role uh, growing up with sports than the main event guy. I, I was never that. I was always the, the little guy to the side that uh, just helped out as much as I could. Yeah. That uh, makes sense. seems you're definitely the, uh, I would say the epitome of the life of service to others. Honestly, I mean, you're still doing it now and you did it for a very long time, but when, so when, when during your childhood, did you say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the military and then more specifically, I want to join the Marine Corps. Right, right. So mentioned some of my mentors growing up. One of them was dad, and he was an Air Force guy. He did four years and got out. Never really talked about that. Just knew that he served. But another gentleman was an uncle of mine who did some time in the Army and got out and went to NASA. And between those two individuals, they never really talked about their service, but you could see it in their life. They, they always put others before them. They always took care of everybody. And... I didn't know at the time, but I, there was, that was, I was drawn to that. I was drawn to that, that type of life. So I was 16 and I was telling my mom and dad, Hey, I'll go in the air force. If you sign, sign for me right now. And they said, no, you need to complete school and uh, give a little more time. And I'll be honest with you. It was a sticker. It was a Marine Corps Marine sticker. 
that drew me in. And it, and I was done with high school. I was in a drafting program for about six months and sitting behind a desk, learning how to draft and said, hey, you know what? I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I'm going to go do something. So I went to the recruiter's office and he uh, talked to me, you know, said, hey, I got some options. Go Butter Tea or you can go security forces. And you can leave in three days or 30 days. So I went home, talked to mom and dad about it. They, they kind of knew it was coming. But my dad said, uh, son, you need to leave in thir- three days. Because in 30 days, you're going to change your mind. So that's what I did. And then off the boot camp, and I went into security forces first with an infantry option on the backside. But uh, it was a sticker that drew me in. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly couldn't tell you why I picked the Marines. Uh, well, I, 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 I take that back. I, 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 my grandfather was kind of my role model, like your father and, and, and then the uh, NASA guy. Um, he was a drug cop in Tennessee, and he was the meanest but the nicest guy I'd, I'd ever met. I remember I was like 13, and uh, I, I lied to him. Something stupid. I wasn't supposed to hang out with this kid because we left the pool to go hang out with girls or something, and I... I I lied about who I was talking to on the phone and he punched me in the face and I fell on the ground and he kicked the shit out of me when I was on the ground. And I never lied to him again after that, but I uh, always looked up to him, but he, he took me in in high school cause I was skipping class and smoking pot and just being a turd. And my mom couldn't really handle me. And my dad, my dad's not like a, a aggressive or like disciplinarian type dude. And I tried living with both of them. And then I realized I'm like, dude, I got to change these kids I'm running with or, or turds. And my grandfather took me in in Tennessee. So I moved from Florida to Tennessee, uh, my, my sophomore year of high school. And, uh, I went from barely passing and failing classes to straight A's and B's. I, I lettered in, uh, wrestling and football and and uh, he turned my life around but my I wow, met, I met, yeah it's uh, awesome he's unfortunately he's going through dementia right now and it, it's it, that's rough man that's that's a rough that's a rough disease i uh, talked to him the other day he asked me when i was coming home from the marines and i was like wow yeah. i've been out for what 11 years you know but um Anyways, uh, so my best friend that I made in Tennessee, he he was joining the Marines, and he's like, let's join the Marines together. And I'm like, fuck it, let's do it. And then we were supposed to go in on the buddy program, and uh, I worked for his dad, was a superintendent at a block mason company. And we were laborers, man, rough job. But uh, yeah. Katrina hit, and we went down to, where was that? Gulfport, Gulfport, Mississippi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We went down there and helped with the uh, cleanup and, and and did a bunch of work. And uh, my, rec- I was like, man, this sucks. We were living in tents and working like seven twelves or seven tens or something. Great money, but my yeah. my recruiter called and he's like, you want to go to boot camp next week? And I was like, yeah, get me out of here. And then I, <laughs> yeah, I was gone. But um, so, did you go through uh, Paris Island? No. So the Mississippi splits Louisiana. You can go either place. Okay. So they sent me off to San Diego. So I was a recruiter over at San Diego. First time out of that part of the United States. I never went past Texas. I went to Florida before, so it was a new life for me. Didn't know what to expect. Only knew what Hollywood showed me as far as California. You know, I thought everybody was surfers and beach babes. They have that, but it's just not that, right? So, yeah, I tell you, like every recruit, week one, 
what the hell did I do? And <laughs> uh, why am I here? Just watching the planes leave. I'm on fire watch and watching the planes leave and going, hey, I don't know if this is for me. But uh, yeah, that that's where I started at. And I had some phenomenal uh, drill instructors that really kind of showed us the ropes. Our series guns was the only infantry guy in the group and really put the foundations in me or supported what that group of individuals before I went in the Marine Corps were trying to groom me to be a young man that had responsibility and had loyalty that had of the word. Hey, this is your word. And once you lose that, cause you lie, you never, it's hard to get it back. Right. So helping instill that into me and the regiment of the Marine Corps wasn't so hard because my dad grew up in a all boys Catholic school. My mom grew up in an all girls Catholic school. So my household was already strict before I went to the Marine Corps. And I, I would say it just refined me. It refined the, the, the core of where I gave to the Marine Corps. It just made me a chiseled person. It, 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 it kind of took away some of my personality. I'll talk about that later. Uh, and it gave me a new personality. And then, you know, sent me back, uh, back to Louisiana to see mom and dad for 10 days and then off to my first duty station. But yeah, so that, that first three months was spent over there in California in Marine Corps recruit training. A great experience, though. I went during January, so it was kind of cold, especially for a Louisiana boy. Hmm. Even in Southern California can get cold. I didn't know that. But uh, yeah, great experience. And, and I was very lucky to have a rack mate that was prior enlisted in the Army. So this guy really saved my butt. I mean, he knew what was going on. He, when he saw me down or he saw me struggling, just helped me out. And because of him, I, was, I made it. You know, I wasn't anything special in boot camp either. I, I wasn't a guide. I, I was just struggling with general population, trying to make it and uh, and got through that. But yeah, good time. It was a good experience though. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I remember during my time, I, uh, uh, you know, at one point it was in the beginning. It was in the, like the first couple weeks after the, the drill instructors dropped to you and you get, you go away from the guy who's been taking you around to supply and all that stuff and, and getting you all set up. But uh I remember I, I wrote to my recruiter and I'm like, man, I don't know if I can do this. I think I'm going to fail swim quals to, to, so I get kicked out. And, uh, he fucking called the, my drill instructors. I got pulled into the SDI's, the, the, the house there. And he's like, what's this about? You're going to purposely fail swim qual. And I was like, fuck. But, uh, <laughs> after that, I, uh, I pre gave me a little motivational speech. And then, uh, y- you know, after the first few weeks you kind of get used to it and then it's all it's all steam ahead and uh that's that's how kind of it was for me and there are kill hat i guess yeah our kill hat was uh S- sergeant weiderman i don't know if you remember that guy he looked just like arlie ermy older guy yeah. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. He, yeah we, we worked together we were hats together oh the, that guy man oof, that guy terrified <laughs> me yeah he and he, he used to say to us he'd walk down right after we lay down it's dark in the in the squad bays and he'd be like, hey, all you infantry bubbas, you're going to go die for your country. And I just like, man, that was like on a whole nother level the first couple times I heard it. But um, yeah, all in all, I had a great experience. Um, the other two, my two drill instructors, one of them was an MP, Staff Sergeant Vesely. 
And yeah. the senior, I think, I think his name was uh, Staff Sergeant, and then he got promoted to Gunny uh, Ramos. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Supply yeah. guy, yeah. Yeah. But um, Sergeant Widerman, man, to this day, I mean, I'm sure it's a, did, does one of your drill instructors or somebody that was in charge of you there to this day stand out in, in, in your brain? Like I'm talk, kind of talking about Sergeant Widerman, or Widerman, excuse me. Yeah, I tell you, the the biggest influence I had was the the chief. So the not not so much my drill instructors, but that chief, he was a like a Navy force chief? recon guy before Marsock came along. He was force recon, and he told his stories and gave it his his insight on everything. But out of everybody there, he really had the biggest impression on me because of what he had done and how humble he was. He was a badass, but he was a very humble guy, and that stuck with me. Uh, and later on, I found out one of my drill instructors was a water dog. Another, another one was supply, and my senior. I'm not even sure to this day what he did, but he really took care of us. One of my hats was new, uh, the third hat, but the junior, that's the middle hat, and he knew what was going on. Very smooth guy, and kind of like a big brother. But yeah, so all of them really played a, a part in grooming me. But the one that sticks out the most is my serious guns because of how humble he was. But you, know, you never mess with that guy because on the PT table, he just wear you out. And uh, it was good, though. It was, it was good. Yeah, yeah, I remember Sergeant Widerman, I, I would say, was that guy. The, uh, my series guns, I can't even remember. It Maybe Gunny Kelly, real skinny, uh, dark green marine. Yeah, that's who it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that that was mine. But um, yeah, so I just remember seeing the Sergeant Wider, uh, Widerman stack, and that always stuck yeah. out with me. And and like the senior, it was like half a quarter of that. But Widerman was humble. He never really, you know, he had a. I think he had a couple Nam V's and and a, a combat. Act, I mean, just blah 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 blah. And I remember on our. Uh, Last night there, before we, we graduated and left, he, he read his uh, uh, certificate for his uh, NAM, NAM V, and I just remember, that, that, I don't know, it just always stuck with me. But um, tell us uh, one funny story you remember from your time on uh, Recruit Depot San Diego. Yeah, so i tell you, you know, you, you're online, and you're, you're online, and for the, everybody listening that doesn't really understand that, you're standing at position and tension, in front of your rack, and the drone instructors are walking up and down saying, hey, do this, do that. But this this part was the end of the day. And the drill instructor's responsibility at the end of the day is to do a hygiene inspection. He steps in front of you, you know, put your hands out, and say, this recruit has no mental or physical problems at this time. Flip, and you, you, you say the same thing. You spin around so you can check your heels and stuff just to make sure that you're being taken care of. You you don't know that because the drone store doesn't tell you all that, but he's just making sure you can take care of. And uh, there was one time where the, the, the third hat was going around and it was third phase and he was saying, okay, we're done saying I, sir. He was, he was trying to get us not to call enlisted, sir. And the first three people, when he would tell them to turn around, sure enough, I, sir, they would turn around and... I told my rack mate, because he was the drill service on the other side of the uh, the house. I told my rack mate, I said, man, I said, I'm going to laugh my butt off. The next guy says that. Sure enough, the next guy that said that was me. 
And he snapped. This recruit has no mental or physical problems this time. Flip. And I say whatever else. And he said, turn around. I, right, sir. I turned back around, and all of a sudden, he's in my face. His campaign cover is just beating my brow. I told you not to say that again. And and I wasn't laughing at Tom, but my rack mates are losing it over there because I just said, and I'm not about to hold it, the next guy that says this. You just don't realize how rep- repetition affects you until somebody tells you to get out of that. And you just do something. And when people say muscle memory, you do it so many times, so it's just natural. You naturally do it. That's a true statement. And your body just naturally goes through that. And it to deprogram that is a challenge unless you think through that, unless you're thinking about what you're doing to deprogram that. And that I didn't know at the time, but that was a lesson that and throughout my career, just get somebody to do something over and over enough that that's going to become muscle memory. And they're going to do it without even knowing. Now I've heard some people say before, there's no such thing as muscle memory. I, I get it. Maybe you're not your muscles doing it, but your mind's going through that. Your mind's doing it without even thinking. So that's a little bit of a funny story for me. Yeah, he wore me out for about three or four seconds uh, with the campaign cover and just told me to get on the quarter deck and, you know, commence to, Push, run, hop, <laughs> and uh, it was a good time. Though it was, it, it was a good time. I, I tell you, uh, another experience of boot camp that I never would have thought before I went in the Marine Corps was the gas chamber, mm. and and seeing people in the gas chamber and their reactions when something outside of their body is controlling them and they have no control over it, and that gets into your mind, and once you take the gas mask off and kind of going through that experience and how to trust your gear when you put it back on that three or four seconds seems like it's three or four minutes when you have that gas mask off and to see the response of everybody, you see their true nature of who they are kind of come out. And that happens again, you know, later in your career when you go on deployments and you're put in situations or maybe for you uh, or for other people like the pool, if you truly didn't, like the water, I've seen a lot of people in the water. The water is a great equalizer to, to people. And you can be as cool as a cucumber, but once you get in that water and you can't swim or you can't swim with gear on, all of a sudden it's just you and, and that unfamiliar element and kind of getting through it. But uh, yeah, it was it was some pretty funny sights in the in the gas chamber also, kind of seeing everybody react to that for the first time and, and learn to trust their gear, right? They got to learn to trust it. If they didn't, they were going to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I remember when, uh, I did the gas chamber I, for a split, like for a couple seconds, I was like, I got to get out of here. And, and then I thought about it, but I never did it. And then, uh, I mean, we just got through it and now that's, that's definitely true. Learning to trust your gear, learning to like on the rappel tower or the, uh, you know, on that side of the house, learning to trust your harness and that you're tied in. I, I'm a, I climb rocks now and I've been doing it for a long time and I'm, getting my wife into that. And, uh, the first time I took her was in the, um, in a building, like a, like an indoor climbing gym. And it was, she was on an auto belay. No, no, no. I was belaying her, excuse me. And, and I remember she's afraid of heights. And, uh, you know, I told her, I was like, I, I was afraid of heights until rappelling until fast roping and all of that. Now it doesn't bother me. So you just got to do it. And I was like, you're safe. Like you're, you're, you know, and getting her to, 
she started like panicking. Her feet were like five feet off the ground. She's like, put me down. I'm like, I'm not putting you down until you go all the way to the top. And I remember I said, just let go. And she, she sat back and I said, lean back, let go of the rope. And, and once I did that, I could kind of see it click in her where yeah. she trusted the gear. And then that mental like block wasn't there. And I think that's huge. I think that's a very huge thing, but I was very surprised by how many of my peers, I think you qualified me to, to swim, swim qual Q, uh, before the, before the mute. Was that you? That was you and, uh, the, uh, the weapons platoon gunny, I believe. Yeah. So that was, uh, Madden. Yep. Yep. It was weapons platoon. And so him and I were prior McQuist and we were pool guys. So, yeah, I did that when I was a drill instructor on Paris Island. Yeah. So I, you were in Fox company. When were you in Fox as a recruit? I was in, so I went in in June, 2006 and I graduated on my birthday on September 22nd. I believe I was 2072, uh, lead leads lead. Okay. So I went to the drill field after the invasion. So I was either just coming back from the pool deck or probably on the pool deck when you went through, but I was in Fox company my whole time as a drill instructor. You were the fault. I saw you. I remember seeing you, but you never directly did anything with like our platoon. So I think you, were, I you. you, you were the follow series uh, company guns at, at the time when I went through, I believe, because I remember yeah. you. I remember your voice. I remember seeing you, but I don't remember any direct um, interaction. Right, but, right. But back to the pool thing, I I, I was so yeah. surprised by how many of my peers in, in India company that couldn't swim. And I was like, dude, like I, I just looked at him differently. I was like, if your child fell in to waste deep water, you would drown you you wouldn't be able to save them. Like that just right. it was so surprising because I grew I'm from Florida and I grew up on the Gulf and I, I'm an excellent, excellent swimmer, surfing, you know, all of that stuff. And to me, that was just alien. That was alien. Hey, you know, that, you bring up a great point right there. You were surrounded by people in your childhood that said you can do this and it was natural, right? There's certain people in certain areas of the United States of the world that don't have that luxury. And instead, they, they have people telling them, don't go by the water. I can't save you, so don't go swim. And if you have enough people telling you that, that's what you start believing, right? And that kind of goes on. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. You surround yourself with people that tell you something, or you surround yourself with what you watch or you listen to, and that becomes what you believe in. So the first thing I had to do as a swim instructor is tell the recruits, hey, you are all the exact same. You might look different. You might be from different places, but your body chemical makeup is the exact same. Some of you just float a little bit lower under the water level, and some of you float on top of it. And once I could get that through the head, it started trusting other people instead of the people that were influential in their life saying, hey, you can't do this. Stay out of that water. And just like you, you talked about earlier with your wife, you have to break that mentality of you can't. And you got to trust somebody else and that you actually can do it. And then things start becoming limitless for you when you start doing that. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I always say the Marine Corps made me a man. And I know towards the end, I kind of had some issues with discipline and my attitude. And I regret that to this day. But I didn't really, my parents and my family didn't say, hey, you can do anything you want. Like you're talented. I, only thing I ever got was in trouble. And when I went through the Marine Corps, 
I realized that I was talented like I could, I like any of that stuff, man, I crushed it. And, uh, that was a big eye opening experience for me personally. And, uh, I, I just remember I, 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 I guess some of my senior guys, when I was a, a junior Marine kind of had a bad attitude and it was a different Marine Corps than what you came up in, in the beginning, I would, I would assume. And, um, I just wonder I always think back and I'm like, you know, if I would have had a little bit different influence when I was coming up, you know, how, how it would have gone. Right. Right. Hey, I, you know, I do remember you had character with you, right? You, you, you brought, you had, you had a strong character and I would tell you throughout my career, I've always admired people that had character because that's the people you really want by your side when you're in need. And, and, and that could be anything that could be trying to save somebody from a car or in a firefight in another country, because those people don't fold easy. So I would say, though, you might have thought your attitude was adjusted because of the people that kind of showed you things, your character of who you were and your foundation before the Marine Corps kind of came out. And I saw that in you. I definitely did. So uh, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. You you were very you had character to you, but you had the grit and the grind to kind of get through stuff. Yeah, that's huge. I I remember I've been waiting to say this to you, but I remember uh, I think it was right after Rit died, or it might have been before that. I don't remember, but um, you, I remember you talking to the, the to the company. You said motherfuckers like Houston and Rit, they got flavor. <laughs> that's always stuck with me until now. It, it's good. It, it's good to have people like that in your life. And uh, maybe I don't, I don't, uh, it doesn't come out on me right now, but you know, I've always been the underdog. I've always been the guy that had to fight for everything I have. Uh, so I've always admired people that had that light type personality. Yeah. All right. So after, I, I never realized you were a Hollywood Marine either. That uh, yeah. That's news to me, but. So after you go on your uh, post uh, boot camp leave, where where do you go from there? Yeah, so I went to security forces and I went off to Alameda, California, and I was stationed on USS Carl Vinson, which was about twenty five Marines on a five thousand or so person aircraft carrier, and that was the best place that I could have started off from. Uh, I would say very small unit. Uh, we had one Berlin area. We lived on ship for two years. So the only thing you had was a coffin rack and a, a small little wall locker. And you didn't have, I, I have a car, I didn't have credit cards, I didn't have anything. So that was my life, right? And when you get there, that duty station, they said, you can't go on liberty until you pass your security uh, force exam, which was you had to have stood and know how to stand QRT and your posts and everything about that ship before you could have one day of liberty. That took me a while. It took me about three months and, uh, and then and move on. But that showed me what I had to do and what kind of training I had to do just to be part of that unit. And I had some great NCOs there. Uh, when I say great, they, they weren't pleasant, but... <laughs> They groomed me and they really made me the Marine I was more than I think boot camp did because they were with me all the time. 
I mean, we all lived there. Unless you were married, you lived on that ship. So we were in the Berlin area all the time. They, they knew exactly what we were doing every second of the day, unless we were all on liberty. Uh, and they really controlled kind of how we were brought up. Now, the security forces in that unit, they were all infantry Marines. So they taught us tactics. And they took us on patrols as much as they could to get us ready to go to the fleet because they knew that was a challenge. When you go from security forces to infantry, that's a huge challenge because everybody looks at you saying, hey, you're the new guy. You haven't been doing this for the last two years, so you don't know what you're talking about, which yeah, I could see that. But, yeah, my NCOs ran that place. The, the highest-ranking enlisted guy we had for a long time was a staff sergeant who really didn't do much. So our sergeants and corporals ran everything. I'm talking about setting up the range, ran the range. We did what SWAT teams do as far as range tactics. We had to do shipboard takedowns. We did uh, brass roping in on a ship. We would do a takedown, and then we would repel off the ship, me and spy rig off the ship. There was some pretty was some good training. Uh, the only thing that I actually did with that unit, I was about two years, two and a half years there. Uh, real world ops, when Operation Southern Watch happened, the USS Carl Vinson was one of the ships that had to go run some of the bombing missions off the coast. So that was about as close as we got. We had a stand-to mission to get off the ship and go provide security. That was one of the security force missions was you were about the capability of a platoon kind of go in with that firepower and be able to do some of the same stuff, the infantry, but you were forward deployed always. So we never got that close. We always just did security on ship. And then I got to do a med, a Westpac with them. And awesome time. I mean, those are the days in the early 1990s where you really had a lot of Liberty ports. So I got to see a lot of the world as a young, young man and go experience everything. And you talk about Hong Kong, Australia, Singapore, Thailand, I mean, Hawaii. And as a young man, to go experience all that and see other cultures, that was, that was awesome. It was a good experience. Uh, and along with those NCOs that really groomed us and kind of took us along and showed us how to be a, a warrior, but how to be a Marine spit and polish at the same time. One of our jobs we had to do there was we had to do a silent drill team for the ship. So we pull in ports or we go to Hawaii or we had dignitaries that came on ship and we would do a performance for them. And seeing both ends of that spectrum, it was good. It was good to kind of experience both of those. I, I do think that I didn't go to the field as much as my peers that went off into the infantry first did, but it was just, it was a great place to grow up with some great individuals that really took us under our wing and groomed us as we need to be. And wherever that meant, I mean, in the early 1990s, there was no, there was no abuse, but hazing wasn't a thing. So none of my NCOs ever abused us, but they, they, they wore us out. And, but only when we messed up. And they would always pull us to the side and say, hey, here's a learning point kind of from that and talk to us. So I definitely learned that aspect from my NCOs of, you need to hold people responsible for their actions, but you need to also groom them and tell them, hey, this is why and this is how to get better and kind of move on. So I really appreciate that, that duty station for sure.
Do you think that um, if you could change, you know, the, the, the course that every young Marine goes, would you put them into that situation? Like a, a, a young grunt, send them somewhere where they have to be spit shine and polished with that kind of structure before just dropping them in the fleet during wartime? No, I wouldn't necessarily say that because I really respect what the infantry does. I really respect, we, we were a platoon, but we didn't have a company. It was just a platoon size element on that ship. I think the infantry does a, a damn good job at that. And having a platoon to have that same structure that we had in wherever they're at and wherever infantry unit they're at. The thing that was different for us was we lived on that ship and did not get off. You do the same thing in the barracks. You live in that barracks, but you get a little bit more of your personal space inside your room with your buddy and everything. And, you know, in today's age, you, your personal space goes as far as your phone sometimes. But living on the ship, you, you didn't really have personal space. And you grew like a family together. Whether you hated them or you loved them, you, they were part of your family. And when it's time to work, everybody worked together and, and did the job. So, yeah, I don't think that uh, I think that I think that the Marine Corps does a damn good job at that, especially the infantry or other units where they their NCOs are empowered to really groom their Marines. And they got that right. I think where we go astray sometimes is how were those NCOs groomed and are they doing the right thing? So if they if they were taught correct, then those young Marines coming into that unit are coming in and getting welcomed and getting worked, but they're getting taken care of. So some units, I think, kind of go astray and they get a little chip in their shoulder and, and hey, you need to do this to be part of this group kind of thing instead of just embracing them and saying, hey, you know, you're part of the family from day one. This is who we are and, and training them as such. Yeah, I agree for sure. Like when I got in, it was real. You haven't been to Iraq. You ain't shit. You kind of got to, you, 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 you know, like you, you're the, uh, the FNG for a very long time. And, uh, yeah. I think the infantry during my time was probably different than the infantry in the early nineties, I would say, because it was just deployment, 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 high op tempo. And I don't right. really remember having a bunch of NCOs. It was all Lance corporals. And, um, yeah. you know, the corporal here and there, but, uh, my, my squad leader was a Lance corporal, you know, and, um, it, it just, uh, it's a lot different during, during wartime. I, uh, that from my recollection, but, um, what was your impression of the, the Navy at that time on that ship? Cause I remember on our ship when we, they would do, they had to do their qualification. And I remember people shooting the deck and NDN and, walking through the chow line, like with sandals on and PT gear and just kind of, it was just a little bit more, I don't want to say sloppy in like a bad way, but it was from what we were and how we came up and were treated and our, our standards to seeing the, the Navy and their standards. It was kind of a culture shock for me. Right. Right. So I would tell you the the Marine Corps and Navy have always been different, but to answer your question directly, the Navy and the Marine Corps were a lot more disciplined in some ways as far as uh, in the 90s. And I think that had to do with one of your comments, like you, your senior Marines were Lance Corporals and maybe a corporal, right? And those guys probably had about, what, four years in the Marine Corps? If that. Yeah. So 
my senior Marines were corporals and sergeants. And these guys had between six and eight years and were shit hot Marines. They weren't shit birds. That was just a promotion rate time. So by the time they got to that rank, like they were ready. They were ready because they had been through things before and they had understood the responsibilities that they had. And, and I think that the faster you get promoted, you kind of miss out on some of that. You kind of miss out on some of that grooming and kind of going through things a couple of times and being humble in, in your life. And that's one of the things that we teach Marines is, hey, you need to be a warrior, but we we lack the route to back teaching them to respect the enemy, to respect their Marines. And you can be hard on them, but you got to take care of them. And I don't mean putting your hands around them and saying, hey, good job and everything. But I mean, to the point that they know you care about them, but you're going to work them. So I felt that. I felt that difference. And I think that kind of went along with the Navy also. And Navy had that difference about it. But the I definitely learned about the blue-green team being on the USS Carl Vinson right off the back of the first part of my career. Once those two teams join, it's, a, it's an awesome thing. The Marine Corps can't get places and do things logistically without the Navy that we do. And I, and I understood that right off the back. So, yeah, I think some of those differences you can definitely tell. You can go on to most bases and tell the same thing you were talking about right now. Uh, we've lost that edge that we've had at one time. But I don't think that's just the military. I think that's society. Society has kind of uh, lost that edge as far as discipline. Yeah. Uh, I agree 100%. So we're um, from after you wrapped up the security forces time at the Carl Vincent, where was your next stop? Yeah. So I went over to one five Camp Pendleton and served there for about a year. As soon as I got there, you know, they put me in as a squad leader and this is kind of what I was going back with before. You know, I'm a young corporal and now put in charge of an infantry squad with only have limited experience on security forces. So, I learned then that to trust the people I worked with and their experience and their capabilities and to be a guiding leader of that group. That's definitely where I learned that at. Cause I didn't know, I wasn't as sharp as they were on infantry tactics. I had to trust my fire team leaders and be a leader and learn as fast as I can that all the stuff they knew and the experiences they had. And their experiences were, they were going to Okinawa, they were going to Bridgeport, and they were going to Point on Palms. So this is, again, still in the 90s, where they weren't deploying to you know, Iraq or Afghanistan or anything. But yeah, it was, uh, I deployed with them. We, we went to Point on Palms and went to Okinawa, Camp Hansen. And uh, it, was, it was a great time. It's about a year, year and, year and a half. And I was a corporal at that time. And I, and I let people influence me wrongly because. As a young corporal, instead of listening to the staff and COs and the officers that try to tell you, hey, where are you going back to? Make this a career. Think about that. Think about those two options. I was pissed off and, and you know, I'm done with this. I'm done with the Marine Corps. I want to go out to the real world, like everybody says, right? So, I, yeah, I, I did about a year there. 
and we deployed. We went to Thailand. We did Cobalt Gold, uh, trained with the Thailand Marines. And I had a great time, and I had some great friends from that unit that I still really keep in touch with today that I reach out to and, and, and really enjoy that experience with that unit. Uh, but it was a very short time in my career. So I did for about a year there and left. Yeah. So when you say you left, you, you got out of the Marines? Yeah, I got out of the Marine Corps. I got out of the Marine Corps. I went back to Louisiana. And when people say, hey, you can get a job because you're a Marine, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I would say you can get an opportunity because of what that carries. So Exxon Chemical Plant, there was a job for a laborer that opened up. And because a guy that I used to know as a child growing up told somebody else saying, hey, I got a young man. He just got out of the Marine Corps. He needs a job. That got my foot in the door. It didn't get me the job. So once the guy said, yeah, we'll give him a chance, the foundation that I had from a child and also from the Marine Corps that kept me on that job of the work ethic, of the leadership. And I was only 22 at the time, but I still had a focus and had a drive that I was out doing most of my you know, colleagues in that field. And that was just basic labor working at Exxon Chemical. So, you know, during that time, I did that for about a year. And after about three months, I went back in the Marine Corps. And I, and I missed what everybody says they miss when they get out. The brotherhood, the camaraderie, the, the, the service to others. And you, you just don't find that in a lot of places. You can find it, but you don't find it in a lot of places. And at that time, I also met my wife. And my wife told me, she said, you know, if you want to go back to the Marine Corps, I'll follow you wherever, wherever you go. And, you know, she's held true to that about 23 years of marriage. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So I attribute that to my wife just being a support network to me and saying, hey, let's go do this. So, yeah, I left Louisiana again and went back in the Marine Corps. I remember vividly a conversation you had with a, a lot of us. And um, you said, you're going to miss it. You said, you're going to get out. You're going to go work construction. And you're going to miss it. And you're not going to be able to get back in. And, uh, man, that's some true that's some true herds right there. I uh I miss it every day. I regret getting out, you know, and that's um, very, very true. So any, any, any active duty military people listening, I know it kind of sucks when you're a junior enlisted. I never got to see what the upper part of that brings, but I would assume as you get promoted and you get more rank, you, you deal with less of the, the BS of being a Lance Corporal in the infantry. Is that probably correct? That's a great question. So... As you move up and you gain rank, you gain, gain a ton more responsibility. And as you move up, you still deal with challenges just on a bigger level. So I enjoyed my time as a young Marine, when I say that sergeant and below, because I had to deal with the platoon sergeant and the platoon commander. And now looking back on my career, those were some great days. Because dealing with two people, it's a lot better than dealing with three or four bosses of different spectrums, different branches. It gets very complex. But the main goal, uh, I think, as you go along is enjoy today, plan for tomorrow, but enjoy today. 
And so many of us, me, me included, just wanted to go to the next thing, the next unit, the next deployment, want it to be the next rank. Just enjoy today because you're never going to get today again. And when you look back later in your life, you can look back on yesterday and say, damn, that was good because I enjoyed that moment. You might never go back to wherever you're at again, wherever that's deployed or on a mew or on a duty station. You might not ever go back there again. And some people say, thank God, I'm not going to go back there again. But even the, the craziest places I've been, when I look back, I have great memories from each one of them. Yeah, I agree. The, I would say the toughest part for me when I got out was realizing that I was never going to go back to being in the barracks on D Street with these guys at, at that time, you know, and that was a that was a really hard pill to swallow for me. And then on top of that, the unit went back to they went to Afghanistan and then we they we lost Mark uh, Bradley and yeah. Thompson. We lost a lot of good dudes. And it was just like, man, I'm just sitting on a recliner drinking beer every night, working some BS job. And I could have been over there, Meg, you know, like that was a, that was, that was a really tough time. It took me a few years to kind of find my, you know, my lane and my rhythm as a civilian. That was very tough. Right. But, um, <clears throat> so, okay. You go, you get out, you go to work at the chemical plant and then you get back in. Where does that take you? So that brought me to three, one. So back to Pendleton, go to three, one. And, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, I got out, I was 165 pounds. I was a stud when I got out, I came back in, I was two ten, and struggling, struggling to make it again. I was, I was an underdog. I've never been the top guy and managed to piss off my first sergeant because I wasn't getting paid. And, uh, you know, not getting paid in California is hard. And I'm going on month three, and my company Gunny took me straight to the sergeant major and got that solved. With that, kind of pissed off the first sergeant because <laughs> I adored him. <laughs> so, you know, what does the Marine Corps sometimes do with people they don't like? They get rid of them, right? So, that was a great opportunity for me. I went interviewed for S four, and I was in logistics for about two years. And in a position called battalion police sergeant, which you know, doesn't sound like anything at all, but the opportunities I got to do for logistics, I got to be the B team. The A team was the, the staff sergeant that would go off the lieutenant. And the B team was the, the captain that went off of the sergeant. And that was me at the time. And we would go run logistics, ammunition, chow, uh, coordination for movements. We would do that. And we did that. While we were deployed, we went to, this is another pack with them, but we did that in Australia, got to do that, got to work with the Australian military and see logistics from that point of view, deal with that outside of America. Now, I was still young at the time and that was very, it was great, but I had a, a damn good captain in the, in the logistics that really groomed me to be proficient. And to kind of get back on the swing of things, I lost a lot of weight, got back down to probably about 180 or so. Uh, he was a biker and swimmer and a surfer. So I never surfed, but used to run all the time uh, and uh, definitely up and down the mountains of California. 
they'll get you in shape pretty fast uh in the pool with him all the time and he showed me a lot about life and a lot about initiative because in logistics you don't wait for people to ask for stuff you forecast things and see what are they going to need based on your experience and your know-how so we did that and we were always very successful so i did that for about you know, two years and then from there people started seeing kind of who i was and the talent that I had. So they moved me from there into Kilo Company. Uh, that was a, a helicopter company at the time. Muse back then traditionally had a boat company, a helo company, and then a mobile or straight leg company as far as being MUSOC. So I got to go to the helo company and really learned, I became a hearse master. I learned the ins and outs of a, of a helicopter but I knew that because that was familiar to me from the USS Carl Benson. We did that type of training. Uh, so great time there. Uh, did another deployment. Had to come back a little early from that deployment. My wife was pregnant with my second, my daughter, and was having some huge complications with that pregnancy. And she just needed me by her side. So I had to come back for the second deployment and spent Probably about a good three months of that deployment at home, taking care of the family and taking care of the spouses and the families that were back in that unit. And that, that was just another challenge just to kind of see really from that side what our families deal with when we're deployed. You know, simple things as getting an ID card or figuring out pay when you're not getting paid and, and your spouse is gone and just... Our spouses do a tremendous amount, military spouses, that sometimes we just don't even realize when we're gone, how they take care of the home. So I got to see that. And I was promoted to staff sergeant during that time. And when we got, when that unit got back, you know, I was back for about three months. So I got put on a lot of duty so that other Marines could kind of go enjoy their homecoming. Right. I remember being on duty one time. I was the, staff sergeant and the xo came in i remember the xo saying i need to get into the vault into the secret vault why the hell on a weekend would he want to come in and have to get into that right well two weeks later we found out as we were gearing up to go into the invasion of iraq so uh got put into the boat company at the time and i got put in, in charge of mortars so here i am again i am the Infantry 0311, first two years, did security forces, got out, came back in, and did some time as a platoon sergeant, as a sergeant, and got sent home early on one of the deployments to take care of the family. And now all of a sudden, I'm a staff sergeant in charge of mortars, which I don't know the first thing about. And again, I leaned back on to, okay, I'm going to take care of the Marines. I was lucky enough to have a sergeant that was division level instructor of mortars. He knew what was going on. And I leaned heavily on him and he had trained the mortar section. They really didn't need me tactically wise, but to take care of them from a leadership perspective, that's the role I really took on. I tried to learn as much as I could. I did the mortar gun drills with them and ran through all, all that with them just so I can understand it. But look, you're, you're talking about 30 days before we go into the invasion. There's no way that I'm going to be tactically sound on any of that stuff. So we worked all through that. And 
at that time, we were lucky enough to have a very intelligent, savvy platoon commander that had grew up on the enlisted side in Force Recon and then came over and uh, was you know, now our platoon commander. So it was a great, that was a great experience. You always, you know, you always practice kind of like a football or whatever sport you practice for. You practice for the big game. Well, in the 90s, Marines always practiced but never got to go play. Sometimes they would do four years without going deploy other than going to Okinawa or, or something like that. So they get to go do the invasion. I go back to enjoy the moment. It might suck. It might really suck. But when you look back on it, you're going to think that was pretty cool. That was part of that right there. So just to be a part of that group of men that went in and did that. And three, one time, most of those Marines were together for almost three years, which is unheard of. Usually you come back after the second year and you've got to go down to a skeleton group because everybody gets pushed somewhere else as far as on orders. Well, we had came back and it happened that quick that we, we left as a unit and very mature unit, very knowledgeable in their skills as far as weaponry and tactics. And it, it was a great it was a great deployment. But here's also what I would say we have a lot of our veterans that are having difficulties because of their experiences overseas. Uh, wherever that might be, you, you define experiences however you want it, right? Whether it's going to house to house or whatever your job had you do overseas, if it was uh, take somebody else's life or if it was enforce certain things, I think one of the things the Marine Corps missed the mark on, not just the Marine Corps, society missed the mark on, is teaching Somebody that has to go into harm's way to respect and understand their enemy. In fact, I say that first, because before I take somebody's life, I have to understand that I'm going to live with this the rest of my life. So having that kind of talk to the Marines up front and that unit was powerful. I would say when the, Marine, when the services started deploying as fast as they did, we lost some of that element to teach Hey, this is how you go do your job. But let me teach the backside of that and what you have to deal with the rest of your life. You need to make sure that you're going into this understanding what you're about to do and, and what that means. And we got on a, on a fast cycle sometimes where we were just coming back and forth. And we kind of lost some of that. We maintained and we sharpened our skills as far as weaponry. We, we lost some of that human factor. Uh, stuff. And I think that's why some of our veterans are, are uh, having some of the challenges that happen now as far as did I do what was right? And you're the only person when you start talking about that, you can't fool yourself, right? You can fool everybody else, but you can't fool yourself. But so that was three one. So I did three deployments with them, really two and a half because I came back early, but learned a lot from that unit. A lot of great unit uh, leaders in that unit have gone on and done tremendous things for the Marine Corps. Uh, so uh, I, I, again, had a foundation of incredible leaders, incredible people that kind of taught me that respect and humbleness and not only told me 
but showed me. So huge, huge unit for me and very appreciative to kind of be part of that. Is there anything from uh, boots on the ground in Iraq that you care to speak to how that kind of went and what you guys did? Yeah. So, you know, going into Iraq, one, we floated over there. So we were on ship and we had, you know, less than a month to kind of talk to whoever was in desert storm about what to expect, what's the enemy like, what, what's the conditions going to be like? Cause none of us had ever, ever experienced that. And then getting into Kuwait and kind of going through those drills and sharpening and understanding that was powerful and it was very helpful. But some of the stuff that never would have thought, you know, we're over there and logistics couldn't keep up with us on that push from the, from the start, from even before the start, we're hardening at the time, five tons, not seven tons with sandbags on the bottom sandbags on the sides and putting up the seats. And we're in the middle of the truck with guns facing out. That was our initial, how are we going to enter to Iraq? Because we hadn't got any of the mechanized gear yet. So to kind of go through these drills and, and kind of look at each other going, is this really how we're about to do this? <laughs> but to see, you know, all of this gear show up. And I talked about uh, being a part of the mortars, right? You know, one of the things that we saw come up was a mortar ballistic computer. I never trained with this thing before. And all of a sudden, this piece of gear is put into our hands. Hey, learn this in the next X amount of days so we can employ it. That, that was different. And thank God, again, I had a division instructor trained sergeant that could kind of manipulate that stuff and get and absorb that information because I couldn't have done that. There's no way I could have done that. But from there and kind of going into it, you know, the first at least month, month and a half, we're, we're day in, day out in our mop suits. Oof. We're in and out of, and we did not come out of our mop, mop suits. I want to say for at least the first 30 days. In your mop suits, and you had one pair. You didn't have like your pair you could change out every day. So below that, you need your skibbies on, your PT gear, and it was, you know, we started when in the cooler months, but it started warming up. And when you're moving around and doing the things you're doing, you know, we were digging at least skirmisher trenches, if not fighting holes, every night because we're moving every day. Our tempo was move as far as we could, sleep for a couple hours a night, get up at zero two and move again. And some of the spots you could just barely scrape out a, a, a skirmisher's trench. So you learn about all this. And I kind of talked about practicing and played a big game. You learn all these tactics and everything to do. When you start doing it, you're like, wow, this is, this is not how I, I envisioned it. Right. So I want to say after day 30 something, uh, we, we come out of, mop suits which are torn to shreds at that time and get back into camis and start going but during this whole push you know haircuts that's non-existent showers not with canteen you're doing canteen showers uh kind of getting through everything and tactically always being on the alert tactically always being sharp and always kind of knowing Something could happen to us because at times we were the most forward unit out there. But the one, the first time I remember seeing something was I'm in a, in a fighting hole and I was in the fighting hole with the sergeant I talked about. And we see these helicopters 
flyovers and they're screaming flying overs. And we see off in a distance, which I believe was a triple A gun, shoot from the ground up, try to hit these guys, right? That's the first time I saw enemy fire actually firing. These guys come screaming back at us and then going even faster. And you see machine gun fire. And it's in the middle of the night. So it's like fireworks, machine gun fire going and a couple of toes and hellfires go and a big glow on the ground. And that was like hair went off in the back of your neck. Like, okay, it's not just me and my rifle. It's not just me and my buddy right here. It's this whole magtav element and we got protection. That was just, it was an awesome feeling to see that, you know, to feel the enemy there, but to feel us as a force dominating that field. And that was just one night as we were moving up, right? We get into uh, Al-Nazaria and, you know, we're, we're sitting outside of Al-Nazaria. And I want to say at this time, you, you see a bunch of forces out there and you see the vehicles and stuff. And as we get there, it's during the day, and you see a medical helicopter coming from north to south. And you think in your mind, because they have a big medical plus sign on the the side of the helicopter, you think, this is what I'm about to go into. And we're getting reports of kind of what's going on forward of us. And one of the units had got hit, and we knew that we were about to go into an environment we had never been before, because this is part of the Marine Corps that had never been to war for a while and we're just kind of getting back into it right and one of our orders was all right we're going to disembark we're our, we're on aavs we're going to waterproof our gear and we're going to go across this river right here everybody started losing their mind like hey, you mean i gotta take these mortars the base plate all this ammo which by the way some of it is reacted to water and go across this damn river and that's where the Marine Corps uh, shines at. You know what? This, this is crazy as hell. But all right, let's start getting our gear ready and getting ready for it. And just kind of making fun of the situation the whole time. And that's really where I saw where being cheerful in the midst of chaos, where what Marines do great. Stuff could be just out of control. Marines just make fun of it and keep pushing on. Well, thank God. You know, an hour before we, we launched this troll, orders change. We all get back in the AVs and we cross in the AVs and keep on crossing going north. But the first time I remember a two-way uh, range where somebody's actually shooting directly at us was you know, zero two in the morning, crossing one of the rivers, going into Nazaria. And we're, we're laying down base of fire and, and they got fire coming back at us. And it almost didn't feel real. It almost didn't feel like, wow, we're, we're actually in, a, in the attack right now. So kind of getting through that part, and I'll go back to being a leader and doing what you think is right to take care of your Marines. So on an AAV, when the ramp lowers, they do a little with the ramp, let you know that, hey, it's going lower. The mechanics are saying it's going lower here in a second, so get ready. And our orders were, as soon as that ramp drops, go out and set security. And we had just you know, gotten to this two-way range where people were shooting at us, and we had to get out, get out of this protected track to set security for the tracks 
and tanks and support. And, and as soon as that ramp went down, I don't know, I don't know why. It sure in the hell wasn't because I was brave, but just ran, ran out because I knew that I if I didn't go, nobody would go. So ran out, got down, set security, started doing what I, what I knew as far as infantry tactics, setting everybody in. And uh at that point, I, I had talked to my sergeant later, you know, weeks later, and he would he had told me, you know, if you wouldn't have gone, I would stay on the track. There was no way in hell I was going to go. So leadership, it, it doesn't have to be brave because I wasn't brave. That wasn't a bravery thing or a heroic thing. That was just I knew people were looking up to me. And it was just a lesson I learned again in life. You never know who's watching. You never know who's going to be right behind your footsteps. And sometimes as a leader, you just got to get out. And even though it was uncomfortable, do the uncomfortable thing, right? Uh, so, yeah, we, we get we get out. And the rest, rest of that time in that city, it was set to convoy security for follow-on convoys. The convoys come through, and here come the pop shots from the AKs and the RPGs. And I don't want to make it sound like it was a war zone, because that's sure in the hell wasn't it, what it was. It was more uh, families just trying to protect what they thought they were protecting their neighborhood. Kind of like the same thing you would see. Maybe in America, if we got under attack and somebody came, people would protect their own stuff, right? Because you didn't see a lot of people in military uniforms. They were in civilian gear. And whatever they were doing, or whether they were military or not, who knows? But I don't know. It was just, it was different, right? Again, you know, now we're in the middle of the day, and here comes another uh, helicopter screaming over us. Like, what the hell's going on now? And just to kind of set the picture, you know, you're in a street in Iraq, which is not like America. It's humble, to say the least. And you have brick buildings or kind of clay buildings on both sides. This helicopter just comes screaming over us because he had got word something was going on. And we, we had tanks in support of us. So we had tanks integrated with our AAVs. And he does a, a run over us and does another run and banks to the left and just starts shooting machine gun fire and uh and missiles later on we had found out that there was a group of about 60 people and a feed bed that were coming to attack us that guy oh uh, that guy beer saved that whole convoy that day and i would i also learned something in that town trust your gut so when we initially got there and the sun came up you know, we're on a two-lane street, and on the other lane, there's a bunch of packs just set out. A bunch of Marine Corps packs just set out in, in like a like Marines would do, kind of stage your gear. Uh, it wasn't all over the place. It was just odd. And I had one of my young Marines ask me, hey, do you want me to go over there and get their gear for them so we can load it back up? Just didn't feel right. I was like, no, no, just leave that alone. That just don't look right. Leave that, leave it alone over there. Come to find out later, it was a track that got blown up on a pre previous day. Trust yeah. your gut, right? Trust your training, and and understand you kind of go through combat hunter and other things like that, where you understand your environment and what's outside an environment that doesn't look right. Trust that intuition. Learn learn a huge amount, and also learn about, learn about the enemy there too. Learn that the enemy was not a militarized enemy. So you didn't know who was who. 
learned that the enemy wasn't just males. You know, it was males, females, children. Again, people probably just fighting for what they had, uh, kind of getting through there. So it wasn't anything like I was expecting, because again, my only thought of combat was what Hollywood showed me, what you're just blowing up stuff every day, all day for the whole time you're there. Not true, right? It's boring most days, but the days that is exciting, it never goes how you thought it was going to go. It always goes different. And an enemy always has an option and always has a vote in what goes on. You can train as much as you want, but you never know what they're going to do, right? Yeah, so that's that's just one of the, one of the things I experienced uh, kind of going into into that situation early on, I'm sure it was completely different than, you know, the, the later years of the war. Was there a big IED threat, uh, when you guys were there as opposed to when three, two went back in Oh five, Oh six and, and, uh, Oh seven. No, I don't know. There was not on the road. There was not a big IED threat. The IED threat was in the doors, in the houses. They hadn't really come up with that tactic because they had mines throughout all of Iraq, off the, you went off the road, there was minefields everywhere. So it was more of a military planned defense with the communities kind of protecting their houses more than exploiting the opportunity of, hey, I can put stuff on the road. Uh, that that tactic didn't come until uh, later. Or uh, the Marine Corps was savvy enough to have sent ahead the people that neutralize those threats for us either way my position i didn't i wouldn't be able to tell you as far as what that was ahead of us but from what i saw it wasn't the ied threat as much as the later deployments yeah what what, where'd you guys after after you wrapped up the invasion how many how long were you there how long were you guys boots on the ground and then uh where did it go from when you got back to conus yeah so i started we started in kuwait we wound up in Baghdad. I want to say that took about a little over three months. And after that, it, w- it was crazy. This is, this is just mind-boggling for me. So we go up into Iraq in military vehicles with tank support, AVs, Cobras, you name it. We come back from Baghdad all the way back down in the little Haji buses. That's how we get out of Iraq, right? And this just, just doesn't seem right. But... We get yeah, we, nobody touched us. We got our way back and uh, we came back home. So I would say that close to about three and a half, four months that I can think uh, we were in there and just different. Nothing what, you know, Korean, Korean vets had to endure. Nothing what World War II had to endure. You talk about months, they're they talking about years, right? And harsh conditions. And, and our Vietnam vets, uh, just years of in in this different element where we spent months. So yeah, I think we were very fortunate uh, for that to be able to come back as fast as we did. But yeah, coming back, I, I got back and, and I had orders. So I had to choose which which way to go. We kind of skipped over something, I guess, going back to 3-1. And I was involved in two pretty big things in 3-1. So, uh, I responded to the bombing of the USS Cole when I was on MU. We went help relieve security from uh, security forces. The fast company was there. We set security and supported 
by the FBI and everybody that came in to do investigations during that. And I was in the military during 9-11 when that happened. So those two big things kind of helped set the stage and set my mind on what I need to do to be prepared to deploy and to go into a harm's way. And, And I say all that to say, don't ever take a day as it's not a training opportunity, a day to make your yourself and your unit better. Uh, and it's easy to say that. And I get it. The grind is boring as hell. Sometimes you go to the armory, you just clean weapons all day and that's all you're doing and you go PT, but use those opportunities to make yourself sharper and make your unit sharper. So when that time comes, you don't sit back and regret. Uh, I wish I would have used that time a little bit better, but yeah. So during 9-11, you know, that was a huge spike for America to kind of pull together and say, hey, we're one nation and we're ready to go into our business. But whoever did this was a very humbling time for me because I lived in a trailer park on Camp Pellington. And that trailer park had mixed rank. You know, I was a sergeant. I was a corporal through staff sergeant in that trailer park. And I had a sergeant major living across the street of me, a lieutenant living on the side of me, a lance corporal that picked up corporal on the other side mm-hmm. of me. And that community also helped kind of show me a military life and lifestyle. But that community came together after 9-11. I remember very vividly walking through that neighborhood and with like, pulling my, I think, son and daughter in a wagon. And they had like little flashlights instead of candles and Somebody else had a wagon and playing proud to be an American and just the, the, the American spirit was, was alive during that. And that's just kind of set, helped set the stage of, okay, we know something's coming and we need to get ready. But during, during that time there also, I, I had to also kind of plan as a Marine that knew I was going to stay in the Marine Corps for a while, which direction do I want to go? I want to go to MSG. Yeah, I want to go be a drone instructor. Yeah, I want to go be a recruiter. And it came down to it. You know, I, I chose, hey, I want to go to Paris Island, something different. And I, I want to go be a drone instructor. So you know, to anybody listening that you got to give back to your institution. And that's one way of doing it. It's either recruiting the next bloodline that's coming in or training the next bloodline. It's, it's important to kind of give back to that. Something that's bigger than you. So when you leave, your legacy kind of stays, right? And it's a book I read one time talks about planting trees that you won't see grow into mature trees. Just planting your accessory and knowing that you're not going to be able to see them develop into the fruits. Uh, just very important kind of wherever you go to keep planting those seeds the best you can so you have your legacy kind of live on. But yeah, to... So we got back from Iraq and uh, off to be a drill instructor, right? I left my family in California and went to drill instructor school. And that was, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, I extended on the drill field for, for about six months, selfish reason, because I'm a winter mover and on orders. And I want my kids to be able to finish school and move in the summertime instead of in the winter. So I extended down there. I uh, did three and a half years on the drill field. A year of that, I was a swim instructor. 
and feel very blessed to have the opportunity to go down there and, and train recruits. I would probably tell you something a little bit different during that time as a drill instructor because my, my mindset was different. But now looking back on that opportunity as a more mature man, very blessed and very thankful I got to do that, that opportunity. Uh, but that is a young man's game, that's for sure. Because to train the youth of America, you got to be in shape and you got you to gotta be able to hang with them. But a great opportunity uh, to go do that. I've always wondered, uh, how, do, how, do they, uh, how do they teach you guys how to scream like that and not blow your voices out and, and make your head hurt? Yeah. So, you know, in drawing search school, they'll tell you all the time, like when you're reciting, because you have to recite verbatim every drill movement. And just to put in perspective, the position and tension is a page long. So when you start talking about other drill movements like column of rights and column of files, and you're talking about pages, 10 to 11 pages long of memory. Now, it's not as hard as it sounds because everything kind of builds off each other. So if you know position, tension, parade, rest, stuff like that, that's the foundation. Everything else builds off of that. But when you're reciting this, and every time in school, you know, your instructors are saying, you need to scream as loud as you can. You need to blow your voice out. Because your voice sometimes is the only thing that controls the situation in the squad bay. Now, at any time, one man that's in directing up to 95 men, who's going to win? Now, every time those 95 people, they turn, they're going to win. So building control stuff with your voice, building control stuff with your actions as far as how passionate you are about what you're doing and i would add a, a last thing is you respecting those that have raised in their hand and said i'll volunteer to come into the service and go do this uh you know recruits will never get told that from the drone searcher until maybe the last day because you're trying to groom the youth of america from coming from every vantage point that you can imagine either from the hardened streets of whatever city or the country fields of whatever they had to do to make ends meet because they didn't have money in the family to the people that were well off and didn't, didn't have maybe have chores or anything. You're mixing all these people together with different attitudes and you had to get them on the same sheet of music quick. So I would say there's definitely another place that I understood Marines or in that case, recruits with character had grit because they had gone through adversity in their life before. And they could relate to that in boot camp and say, you know what, this might suck, but it's not as bad as this was in my life, wherever that was, right? Whether it was being homeless or it was just having a abusive household growing up in, they could kind of relate back to that and say, I don't want to go back to that, or at least this is not that bad. Because after first phase, Recruits usually understand, okay, the drone search is hard on me, but they're really just trying to do what's best for me as quick as they can and, and get me out the door to be successful in, in, in the Marine Corps. Uh, it doesn't seem like that while you're there, but going back to be a drone instructor, I definitely understood that. Understood why some of the things happen and how they happen and what repetition does, what muscle memory does uh, to a person. 
Some people might say that's programming people. I would say it's more conditioning people to be successful in the career they're about to embark in. So they understand how to do everything and why the purpose is. And the foundation behind all that is, is discipline. The discipline to, when nobody's looking, do the right thing and have a know-how to do that. What would you say was your most challenging um, experience or thing or, you know, uh, at uh, Paris Island as a drill instructor? Man, I tell you, I tell people all the time, my second cycle as a hat, I wanted to quit. I wanted to 100% quit. I got moved up fast and I didn't pay attention enough as a junior drill instructor. So now all of a sudden you're the heavy or the, the guy that's in charge of teaching drill and really running the house procedures and stuff. I didn't understand fully how to do all that. So I was having a hard time. I had a dynamic team that was pushing me to pass my capabilities and making me uncomfortable every day. So, so I would excel and grow. I didn't realize that at the time. And there were some days where I would go home for the couple of hours I was home and just tell my wife, you know, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. This is challenging. But I would say that most drill instructors like recruits go through that. What the hell did I do? So that was the second time in my life that I had said that, but in the same environment, right? And uh, when I got past that and, and kind of dusted it off and keep pushing and grinding through, I found out what my successes were and how I needed to do and how I need to be a drone instructor instead of trying to emulate somebody else. So I understood at that point in my life, you know, these other people kind of showed me things, but how am I going to do it? And I was, I started becoming better at being a drone instructor when I started doing it my way. And uh, at that point forward, you know, I was very successful. Uh, and, I, and I used that throughout my career. I, I try to analyze the best people that, do things that I'm trying to do in the field that I'm doing and go from there and, and put my own spin on it. I let them influence me, but not to the point where I try to be them. And that's very important for, you know, and people in any, that are growing up in anything and they're doing, you don't have to be somebody. You got to be yourself and understand that you have talents and, and, and exploit those talents. Right. Would you say that, after you were a drill instructor and went through that phase of your career and your life that you were different when you went back to a fleet unit, obviously you're going to be different, but I mean, how you, you get what I'm trying to ask? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, before I went to a drill field, you had somebody come from the drill field, prior drill instructor and say, okay, here comes this guy, you know, here we go. He's a drill instructor and he's different. I felt that, and, and, and weapons platoon kind of felt that in three, two, when I showed up just cause I was very rigid and I was, uh, still in, in the mode of expectations of the drill field. And it, not that that's different from expectations in the fleet, but it is because Marines have more liberties to kind of stretch and, and become who they are instead of what you want them to be. So, uh, weapons platoon was a great platoon. And, and I think that they went along with that and understood that I was going through a point in my life where I had a little bit more drill instructor left in me. And any Marine that, or anybody that comes off the drill film, whatever service probably will understand that as you grow out of that, you grow into a different type of leader. 
that just becomes another tool in your box that you have. So definitely in, in weapons, the great group of people that put up with me and were, was a great was a great unit and a great platoon uh, kind of going through that. But it wasn't until I was a company gunny that I started getting back into my own skin of relaxing a little bit and using that when I needed to. Uh, but going back to being humble and just taking care of Marines, that's what I do best. Uh, I, I take care of people the best that I can. And, and that's my, you know, that's my go-to thing. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that it did change me. Uh, but I think I had a strong enough foundation to kind of bounce back from that and come back from that uh, after a drill field. I remember uh, when uh, when you came to 3-2, and I remember hearing guys like, fuck, he's just a drill instructor, you know, because, uh, excuse, lang- excuse my language, but uh, just because, just you know, like – the, the fleet Marine Corps, the deploying guys, people want to have mustaches. They want to have low regulation haircuts. They want to put their pants in, or their hands in their pockets. And it's kind of like a fear of like, oh, is, is he going to treat us like recruits or, uh, you know, like just just I, I remember that feeling. And right. uh, what what's like so what made you feel that way? Did anybody express that? You could just tell by the way people were looking at you, interacting with you. Or, I mean, how how was that evident? Yeah, so I knew I knew it was going to be different just because I've been on their side before, and I knew that I was very more rigid coming back to the fleet. But I'd go back to a comment you made earlier in the, when we were talking, and you talked about the Navy on a ship and their standards. When, when a force loses the ability to uphold the basic discipline and standards, we didn't that bleeds over into other things. And that goes from haircuts, kind of everything you just talked about. Like this guy's going to come in and set the basic standard and uphold these basic standards on us. But I would definitely go back to something that I've learned throughout my whole career. There is a time, especially in the infantry, to be a warrior. And I'm not saying let things slide as far as haircuts or stuff like that, but I always wanted my Marines to wear their gear, have the appropriate gear so they could perform their best when they're faced against the enemy. And that might mean that they're all not exactly the same. And they have their little isms wherever it is to make them the best on the battlefield. But in the same instance, once they they leave that environment of wherever conflict they're in and they come back to we need to show America how spit and polished we can be. They need to have both those sides, be able to get in blues and not be the poster child, but definitely not be the person that somebody looks at and questions. Is that a Marine? <laughs> Nobody should ever have that question. If they do, then that means that unit or that person is not upholding those just basic standards. Right. Oh, I agree for sure. I, I remember certain first sergeant and this, so this was not going to name any names, but uh, basically he came in and uh, he had been in for 20 years, I think, or something like that. And uh, had never deployed uh, to Iraq. And, you know, as, as junior Marines that were deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, looking at that, you know, there's kind of a slight like, okay, who, who's this guy, you know, but then when, when that person says you're going to get NJP'd for wearing white socks in the field, you know, like that, that's so trivial, but like to your younger people that are, that have 
done things that you haven't done. And, and it's just, it's, it, it's, I don't know, it's really hard to swallow. And, um, do you feel like having your experience in, in your Iraq deployments and stuff like that, that people looked at you different being that you had done these other duties? You know, yes. So I think that I had the buy-in just because I had been there, but I tell you when I didn't have the buy-in going back to coming from security forces to being the, the guy that I haven't been with this group of people and been in the infantry for the first two years, I didn't have the buy-in. Uh, didn't have the buy-in when I became the mortar platoon section leader, mortar section leader. I didn't have the buy-in, right? So I definitely feel kind of that, that first sergeant probably didn't have a choice where they were stationed at. They had orders and they were told by the Marine Corps, you will go here. So coming in and doing the best they can, but going back to the foundation, if you go back to the foundation and wherever you do, you won't go wrong if you just do the basic stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would comment on the White Sox thing. I, I could see White Sox in Iraq when all of your socks are trash and that's the only thing you got. Right? That's different than when I'm not deployed, I'm on base, I can go buy a pair of whatever socks. And where are those? It's a different, different element, right? But just to show, hey, we have to do the basic things first and get that right when nobody's looking, so we can kind of build off of that into other things. Uh, yeah, I think that that's how I would look at that. That's why I brought that up because I wanted to, I, I wanted to hear the the other side of that because I was never in the position that you or those first sergeants were in. And, and for maybe any young military member that's hearing this will understand that the guy's not just trying to be a prick, but there's, there's a meaning behind it and brilliance in the basics, you know, exactly right. what you said, having that base standard. So take us through um, your time at three, two, and then, and then beyond. Yeah. All right. So, you know, three, two got there, went to uh, weapons, and I had a great time in weapons. The, we had some characters in that platoon, but that is what I loved about the Marine Corps. And I experienced that throughout my career and learned that I get along better with people that have character, that have adversity in their life, that aren't just spit and polish. That's my realm that I live in, right? So I definitely enjoyed that platoon. Uh, they taught me a, a great deal. They challenged me on some things kind of going through, but when, when we had to do something, I could always count on all of them. And those young men always had platoons back, always had loyalty and always had the grit to kind of push through stuff and get through things. You know, I would say also kind of leaving weapons platoon and going to the company gunny role uh, that was one of the highlights of my career, just being a company gunning an infantry unit, because you're not the first sergeant. You're not the guy that has to, that is charged with doing JP. That's not your role. You're more of the big brother or the uncle, the crazy uncle, wherever you want to say, right? You're more of that person that just takes care of Marines and is, and is lucky enough to not be behind the desk all the time. That that was a great feeling because once you pick up first sergeant and kind of move on, uh, the desk kind of pulls you to it. It's hard, hard to leave to be able to take care of the Marines because there's so much paperwork. There's ways around that. But as a company gunny, you don't have that. You're always out of the office. You're always with the, 
the group of Marines, you're always in the field with them and you're always taking care of them. So that logistics time that I did when I was a three, one being a four definitely helped me out. I understood that realm, understood that world and the servitude that I did to the Marines in three, two was just phenomenal. Always just like bringing child to them, a hot child in a cold environment, child male back then was two biggest things that Marines look forward to on a shitty day. Right. So, uh, just a great time, uh, had opportunity there, uh, when we deployed and, and went to, I don't know if it was Jordan or Egypt or UAE when we went, but have an opportunity to build a range from scratch as a company gunny and run people through different drills. And, and that was awesome just to have the flexibility to kind of do that. So definitely enjoyed my time. And that was really the highlight and last time in the infantry uh, at really in my career. I kind of moved on uh, from that. So definitely cherish those times, both as a uh, platoon sergeant where our company commander got pulled somewhere else. So platoon sergeant, platoon commander kind of deal. And then going into the company gunning thing was just, I'll, I'll cherish that time. I'll cherish this Marines the rest of my life. But we definitely had some lows during that time with, uh, you know, how you mentioned earlier, we, we lost some Marines to coping. You know, and, and that was Marines. People will always cope using something. When I say cope, that could be anything from eating sugar to taking drugs to doing alcohol or you name whatever consumes your life because you do it so much. You know, that, that's the way you kind of get away and cope. And unfortunately, we had some Marines kind of coping in different ways that either cost them their life or were in a position where they were a leader and they brought other people down that way and it just wasn't good. So, so uh, I learned some stuff in 3-2. Uh, I learned, hey, there's a lot more deeper meaning to the people than what they're showing you. You got to get to know them. You got to get to know your people and, uh, and just take care of them. And, and a lot of times that just means that you're taken away from your family. I really haven't commented about that yet, but I would tell you not six month deployments, not, not all six month deployments, but I have 10 deployments in my career and only two of those were without my wife and children. So the other eight were with them. So the amount of time that I spent at work, because that's what I loved to do, meant I went not with my family, right? And some service members, uh, I would tell you, if you're listening, don't do that. You got to find a way to balance that as much as you can. Because as a young child, that young child from birth, probably until about fifth grade, is learning so much from you. And if you're not teaching it to them, somebody else is. So when they're a teenager and they're a young adult and you wonder why certain things are going on, it's because you didn't teach them the way you wanted to when they were in that learning stage. And I, I failed at that with my family. I was always with the Marine Corps and always with the Marine because that was my comfort zone. So I would say you got to balance that out as a service member or anybody in you know, any line of work. You can't give it all to work because sometimes that's the easier job. It's easier to go to work 
and stay home and take care of the house. But uh, yeah, so that that was my time in three two. You know, I was with three two. We did deployment to uh, Iraq. That was a great deployment because the company had decided to split up the weapons platoon and integrate them with other platoons, but at the same time, bring the 0311s into weapons and kind of give us a bigger perspective of capability to be able to cover more ground. So for the first three months, you know, we were at a retrans site doing patrols out of that and, and kind of making things happen. But my mindset was still with my first deployment with Iraq. And I was fighting against the Republican Guard and Iraqi soldiers, now I'm working with them. And it was hard for me to shift that in my mind, right? And especially trust. And I, I think deployment, that deployment, I gained a lot of weight in that first three months. I wouldn't say depressed, but I would say I wasn't engaged with myself. I was more engaged with the Marines instead of taking care of myself. So this the last three, I recognized that. I got moved. We got we had uh, we reduced our signature as far as the amount of people we had at that retrans site. I got moved to the border of Syria and Iraq, and was one of the senior enlisted Marines there. Great opportunity, got to run patrols out of there, but great opportunity to learn a lot about myself and to get back into good shape, get back into setting the example. And, that, and that's the hardest thing as a leader is you can fool yourself all day long, but your, your Marines or your, your service members or your workers, they're watching you, right? And you, you can talk everything you can, but when it comes down to it, you got to show them how to do it, right? And I definitely learned that about myself there coming <clears throat> off, off the deployment. You know, we, and then we get back, and we'll, we'll be back for like four days, and Haiti, earthquake happened. That was after that uh, Mew. Yeah, I was after the Mew. So you did, we went Iraq and then the Mew and then Haiti. Yeah. 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 And that was the second time in my, in my career where you always hear as a service member, you got to be ready to go. You got to be ready to drop a hat to go. Iraq was the first time. I was about two weeks heads up. This was a four day. So again, I'm telling my family, hey, I got to go do stuff. I have a loving wife that says, I understand, go do it. And taking care of the house. But at that time, we we had uh, some senior leaders that had orders that had to leave. They had to leave because the Marine Corps wouldn't put on stop hold. So I had selected the first army before that happened. So they frocked me. They moved me out of India Company into H&S, the first start. So now going into humanitarian mission as a first sergeant over a company that I only knew for two days before we left. That was a huge challenge. And going back into an environment where maybe I wasn't the best guy for the job knowledge-wise, but I relied on my leadership and I relied on the people that, that worked with me to know their job and do their job and trust them. And we had a successful deployment. We had a successful time at helping out the Haitians on that deployment. So uh, it was a great, it was a great opportunity to kind of go jump right into it as a first sergeant and go do some stuff outside of a of a platoon level into a company level, just being a senior Marine. I had been on MU before a couple of times and, uh, and then in MedFlow once. So I understood ship life. 
because of my history in, in the uh, as a young Marine also. So I kind of fell into a familiar territory. And then HS already had been in S4 and logistics before. So I understood that element. So piecing everything else together, it wasn't hard because I had some great leaders in that company that took care of me, took care of the Marines, and I just did my best to take care of them. And that was that ended my time. We got back from there. Uh, and I, I went off to SOI to MCT on the East Coast uh, from 3-2. Funny story. Uh, we, we were at uh, Fort Pickett and uh, half the company got put on buses and the other half got put on uh, helos. And I was the stick leader for my helo. And uh, so I was a squad leader at that time, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I was. And uh, there was an H&S staff sergeant. His name starts with a B and rhymes with schmooze. And uh, he comes over and he's like, hey, Tweedledum, are you up? And I was like, what? Excuse me? He called me Tweedledum, right? And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm up, Staff Sergeant. And uh, he, here comes the helos. Do, 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 do. I, true, if I'm lying, I'm dying. This guy like runs out into the field. I don't know what he was doing, but got cartwheeled and ragdolled by the rotor wash of the, hel- the helicopter. It blew his cover far away. <laughs> it was just, how you doing over there, Tweedledum? You know, but... Uh, now, I just, whatever, whatever reason that just popped into my head, that was a pretty funny uh, experience. Yeah. And I tell you, I definitely have a memory of Fort Pickett. The second time we went, it was cold, right? And I remember we had burn barrels burning just to kind of stay warm. Our canteens were frozen. <laughs> but there was one, there was one time where I woke up to go check on everybody and found everyone sleeping everybody sleeping well we had the opportunity to either truck back or hike back and we hiked back and i think that was a good learning point for a lot of the marines to know hey where are we doing garrison you're going to do in, in a time of war so you can't get caught sleeping you can't get caught uh letting your guard down but that, but that hike, I feel, in Fort Pickett was a turning point for that company to kind of go from where we were to a higher caliber while we were there. And for those that don't know who Fort Pickett is, it's just a big range complex where you can definitely sharpen your skills as infantrymen. And you can also work on logistics and, and just work on being a, a dynamic unit in a different environment than you used to, which for us was Camp Lejeune. So good, good opportunity. Yeah. Good opportunity. Let me, let me tell you the, uh, uh, the, the Lance criminal side of that experience. Uh, my, uh, platoon commander had the brilliant idea of telling us that we're just going to bring one sleeping system per fire team. And, uh, you know, uh, we're going to be uh 50, 50. So, you know, somehow in his mind that was going to work out, you, you know, one sleeping bag for four people, 50, 50, one sleeping system. And I remember laying in the defense with my saw and I looked over at Gibson and I was like, dude, uh, uh-uh. like it was cold. And I, I remember me, he, we're both over six feet tall, 200, 230 pounds. And, uh, man, we cuddled that night in a sleeping bag back to back. Uh, I got hypothermia that next morning and I got up and I drank really cold water and I went down and I was this close to getting a silver bullet, but the corpsman was a buddy of mine. I was like, dude, don't do not do that to me. And, uh, yeah, everybody went to sleep because it was so cold and miserable and like nobody, you know, 
it's not okay, obviously, but uh, I feel like if it, if that had been downrange somewhere that the that that wouldn't have happened, you know. But uh, everybody was like, "Screw this, we're done." And I I remember we put our saws in our sleeping bag so that nobody could take them away from us. But <laughs> they were going around taking people's weapons and drawing uh, markers on people's throats, like they got uh, their throat cut. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, I mean, uh, again, if we look back in our history, Marines that were in Korea were dealing with that every, and that was light to compare what they were dealing with, right? Mm. And it's all just making us conditioned for different environments and getting our mind so we can, if we're ever in a situation, we can go back and say, at least I know I've been here before and I can push through this. Just condition our Marines or our our people to be as dynamic and resilient as they can. So hearing that, that that was your company guns, first Sergeant Sergeant Major side of it. I I wish we would have heard that more in those situations from people in leadership, because I feel like the Lance corporals and corporals and privates and all that wouldn't have been like, if I would have heard that I wouldn't have been as like, you know, middle finger up at this, you know what I mean? (laughs) So how do you looking back, do you wish that you would have done that more explained, Hey, this sucks, but this is the exact reason we're doing it. I mean, and I'm sure you did. I, I remember you doing that, but other people, do you think that would help or hurt a unit? To have a leader that's like, hey, I know it's cold, but people in Korea went through this. We're doing this. So if we end up in a cold environment, you guys know what's up. You know, it's it's always good if you have time to explain things and to to kind of perspective while you're doing it. But I also think it's good not to do that sometimes, because when you're actually in an environment, you say a rack for you. Right. It might be the first time you were there. And you might have to push through something no matter how much it sucks. And I'll go back to the best thing about Marines is being cheerful in the midst of just chaos and understanding, hey, you know what? This sucks, but I'm going to push through it because I have my Marines inside of me. So I think there's good in both opportunities to explain to your group, if you have time, hey, this is why. But at the same time, like when you go back to your childhood and talk about, I think it was your grandfather or, or uncle that put you in your place at times, just had to do it. So you learn, hey, okay, I'm not going to do that again because I don't want this to happen. And as we go through, just kind of training some people to those standards. So to answer your question, most definitely it's good to explain that, but in my experience, if you would explain that at that time, those individuals are not really listening to you because they're turned off because they're emotionally charged and anything you want to say, whatever, whatever, this guy, don't just screw him. So sometimes that's not the opportunity because people are just pissed off and wherever you say, they don't give a damn in any way. Just choosing the right moment when to come out and kind of talk about that and explain, hey, this is the reason we did what we did. The same thing happens at boot camp. The drill officers don't explain to the recruits every time they got them on the, on the quarter deck why until they leave or later on saying, hey, look, you had this minor infraction. This is why you got IT'd. Uh, but sometimes that didn't happen. So sometimes we have to figure it out for ourselves and kind of internally look and say, okay, what did I do to get in this situation right here? How do I not do that again? And that's, that's our own growth as we get more mature. 
and older. As a young Marine, I, I had that in me. I didn't understand why all the NCOs were such hard NCOs and why they were dragging me through everything that I went through. But as I look back on it, I'm very appreciative that they did it because I learned something from it. And if they did it the wrong way, I also learned that too. Hey, you know what? Probably not the way I'm going to do things kind of going forward. Yeah. That's a good point. Very good. The balance. There's got to be a balance. And um, yeah, so uh, funny uh, side story just popped into my head. I had to go back to Al-Assad during uh, my first deployment for something. Uh, I had to go meet with... uh, it was some kind of SSI training, sensitive site expert, or SSE training with, um, what, what's the, uh, in- the bat system. Yes. Yes. The bats and hide system. That's exactly it. Yep. That. And, uh, there was a, uh, who's the guys that, that are federal agents in the military. What's that called? Is that NCIS or something or, uh, yeah, so that's, that's one of them. NCIS. You could say that. Yeah. So I had to go through some training with those guys, but I remember, I did something. I think I had my hands in my pockets or something. And two first sergeants were walking by and uh, I said something. And I, I was like, I first sergeant. And he's like, I sergeant major select. And he made me say that to him. I don't know. It's just funny. Man. I don't know why I thought of that, but uh, just yeah. a funny story. But, you know, and, and I'd say that uh, some people sometimes get caught up in their roles. And I think that as military members, I don't know if I talk about this later, but that's a hard thing to shake is I am not that whatever rank. That's not who I am first. To me, I'm Lance. That's who I am first. That's my foundation. I had the opportunity to serve in the billet of whatever that rank was or wherever that billet was. Uh, But that's not who I am. And I got a belt to identify who I am, especially when I retire and move on, because that rank is not me. I think some service members that have a hard time doing that, they have a hard time of leaving that part of the life beyond and just having that as a foundation as they grow into something else. Yeah. What's your advice for, uh, you know, that exactly that, like, how does a person not let that identify you? How do you put that down and move on from that? All right. So I'm going to kind of talk about two different things right here. Your, your identity. Now I'm going to tie in. Some people call PTSD with that, right? So your identity before you were a Marine, that's your foundation. The Marine Corps just shaped you. They didn't make you. They shaped you into somebody else. You, you, you and everybody else is who they are before they came in the Marine Corps. And they're not going to change you so much that you're going to lose all of that. You might change a little bit, but you're not going to lose that foundation. I think what happens in in whatever job, it don't have to be the military, it could be a police force, it could be, you know, you name it, any industry. When I let that billet or that rank or that responsibility define me who I am, when I stop doing that, I have a hard time of gaining who I was. So there was a point in my career where I didn't know if I was going to stay in the Marine Corps. I was about the first sergeant or get out. And I started going through a process of transitioning to the civilian force. And at that time, I didn't have education. I had hardly anything to fall back onto. And I didn't know. It was just it was scary, right? And I'd been in the Marine Corps for about 20 years, and I still wasn't prepared to, to go do something else. 
was the only thing I knew was the Marine Corps. So at that time, I, I said to myself, I'll never let this happen again. And I started the transition process. And that happened for almost five years, that transition process. Education. I started going to different classes, not just what the Marine Corps had provided on opportunities getting out of the Marine Corps, whether it was OSHA and safety, or it was learning about the subjects I was learning in, in college and just finding, figuring out who Lance was again without this rank. So I started that process five years before I actually retired, and that helped me out a lot. And during that process, there, I knew I was changed as a person. So I, I went to mental health and said, hey, you know, I like some of the services you provide. Let, let's let, run me through this. And let's see what this is about. And I think the Marine Corps at the time was doing a better job of if you need help, go get it instead of don't go to sick call because that's not where you need to be. So, you know, the people around me accepted that and supported it. It didn't change who I was and, and how, if anything, it made me better. And it helped me self-identify with Lance again and who that guy was without the rank. So I think going through counseling and I think going through all the other opportunities you have as a service member is huge. And I would tie that into you are the sum of the people you surround yourself with. So that kind of goes into PTSD, right? I see, I now, as a, not long, but as a retired guy, I see a lot of veterans saying, woe is me. Uh, I have PTSD and there's nothing else. I would say if you're in that position, you need to look at who you're surrounding yourself with. Is it people that inspire you still? Is it people that bring out the best in you? that encourage you to provide positive motivation? Or is it people that say, hey, you are a veteran and people owe you things and you're broken and uh, it, just repeating that. You gotta look at who you surround yourself with. Everybody, I understand that everybody handles situations different, right? And some people just how they grew up uh, can handle a simple or a complex situation different. And then later in life kind of goes back to the, the choices that I made when I was in the military or whatever service was I respecting the opponent, the enemy was I giving them respect before I either took their life or I did whatever I had to do and you name it. Right. And I think that's where we missed the mark at. We don't, we don't talk to our junior Marines or sailors or soldiers about you're going to have to live the rest of your life, the, the choice that you're making right now. And that's where some people are having a hard time of maybe I made an immature choice and now I have to live with this. I can't shake that, but it goes back to, and I speak a lot about the infantry because I was an infantry guy for so long, but this goes for any occupation. I chose to volunteer to come into this force. I chose to volunteer to learn my trade and how to impose my will onto another country, another person, and protect and uphold the human rights of people. Now, some of that might put me into situations where they weren't the best, but 
even if I was immature and made an immature decision at that point, I got to realize that, hey, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right frame of mind when I made that choice, but that's in my past. Now I have to look at my future and, and about myself because you, me, and everybody else, we have a purpose in life. And you can look at that spiritually. You can look at that through religion lens or however you want. But we all have a purpose in life and a reason to live and to contribute and to move on. And that kind of comes back to some of us can't deal with whatever choices we did. And now we start coping with whatever, you know, we kind of talk about coping methods before. Whatever coping method you want to use, you kind of deal with that. And that's hard because it clouds your mind and doesn't allow you to think clearly and continue to surround yourself with positive reinforcing people that will bring you forward and have you really start doing your purpose in life. And I think that's, that was huge in my last five years of the Marine Corps. I recognized that, hey, I need to go talk to somebody about mental health so I know what's coming my way. I realized I need the tools to be able to deal with this. And I realized I need to surround myself with people that will bring me forward and not put me down. And as soon as I did that, then my whole perspective and my whole life changed. And I went from 100% given to the Marine Corps to start balancing my life out with my family and resolving some of the stuff, the bridges that I burned and, and helping out with that. And that and that now helps me out here on this side as a, a retiree, because I'll never lose the memories and thoughts that I experienced while I was in the, in the Marine Corps, whether good or bad. But those are my experiences to have. And moving forward with that, and even if I was immature during some of those things, to now look back and sat and say, okay, what do I learn from that? How can I teach others on how to get in situations and not be as immature as I was so when they're my age, they don't look back and say, I wish I would have done something different. Uh, so that's a purpose of mine, kind of moving forward. So if you're out there and you're struggling with something, I'm not saying PST is not real because I know it is. But I'm saying that there's a, there's a way out and it's not through coping. It's through good counseling. It's through good mentorship. And it's through finding other light top groups. If you're in the military, you have your support structure always around you. It's just built around you. Once you get out, you lose that. So you got to find it in something else. Some people find that in retreats. Some people find that in church. Some people find that in gun, gun clubs at the firing range. Just whatever you're passionate about, go to there because they're going to have people that are resilient and that can kind of, that are older than you and talk you through some of the stuff you might be going through. So that's the big thing I would say about that. Have you done, have you heard of or done any research about uh, these psychedelic treatments and these programs for, for veterans? So I've done a light treatment before. I've done a, uh, it's like a shock treatment on your earlobe. And I've done the relaxed breathing and I've done yoga and I've done mental health talking to people. So that, that's the treatments that, I, that I've been through. And I would say I, I purposely gain a lot of resilience through yoga. I'm a talker, so I enjoy groups and talking to people. 
And I gain more by instructing and teaching people than I do people telling me, instructing me. Because I learned more about myself. And I knew that in the Marine Corps, if I wanted to truly see how much I knew about a subject, I had to teach it. And that let me know because people kind of challenge you and ask you questions, right? But that's the only treatments I've been through. And I would say, you know, the light treatment where they put glasses over your eyes, it, it puts you in a relaxed atmosphere, but so does breathing. So does the little uh, therapy where they put shock on your ears. All that gets you to a relaxed environment where you can scale down your thoughts into where you can actually think and you don't have so much going on in your mind. So my answer to that, I've been to some through some of those, but I think everybody's different. Whatever works for you is what you need to go with. And running is another thing that works for me. Right. I'm not a fast runner anymore, but I do enjoy going on a, a run because I don't have outside distractions. It's just me in the road, however fast or slow I'm going. And I can think that allows me to think and focus on whatever I'm trying to work through. Yeah. I've had a, a couple of Navy SEALs on the podcast and uh, one of them, his name's Dan Cirillo and uh, real heavy combat. But uh, there's a program where you go down to Mexico and they take uh, what's called Ibogaine. And it's a uh, psychic. It's the most powerful psychedelic drug or compound on Earth. And it basically lasts for 24 to 36 hours. And he said the way he explained it is he was like out of his body, but looking at a computer screen of all the traumas and, and everything that he'd been through his entire life, way back to memories he didn't even remember. And you basically just, whatever it does, it rewires and closes off, uh, stuff like that. And um, then they follow it up with, it's called 5-MeO-DMT. And I know it sounds crazy, but in, in uh, nature, that is the Sonoran Desert Toad Venom. But they make a, a synthetic version of that. And that's about a 15 to 20 minute experience. And um, long story short, um, I've listened to a lot of guys who were on the verge of suicide. And uh, one of them was a, a breacher for SEAL Team 6 for a long time, Dev Grew guy. And um, you're hearing the podcast with him talking and then his wife talking and, and explaining how bad he was. And then he went to this treatment and she's like, it, it was like when I saw him after the treatment, it was like the guy I met in college. And it, he was so moved by this treatment. He started a nonprofit that raises money to send special operators and military veterans through this program. He's put like 350 or 400 in the last four or five years to date. And he said literally like 99.9% .9 of them, it's like a light switch. If you do the proper preload mental health to, to go into this, to, to tell you what you're about to experience and how to cope and what to do. There's doctors down there with you. You're hooked up to an EKG, you're screened, you know, and then there's mental health people that are walking you through these things. But the, uh, the second um, medicine is the only substance, one of the only substances on earth that repairs, uh, and, and regrows new brain matter. And, uh, you know, 
Um, I'm actually going to try, uh, I'm supposed to go down and do that treatment at some point whenever it lines up. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's just something I've been really researching the psychedelic, you know, they did they, they do those drugs, but I hate to even call them drugs, but, and they also use uh, psilocybin on a micro dose level. So you take like 0.1 of a gram for, for a few days and then you go off for a few days. So there's no, you don't get high from it. There's no, you don't really feel like, you know, if you took a macro dose of it, but, um, you know, these, this guy was like straight laced, didn't smoke, never done any kind of drugs that were against drugs. And that's kind of a barrier to these treatments. Um, but they're starting to be studied more. Um, yeah. And I just, I, you know, I didn't know if you were aware of those or had known anybody personally that's done anything like that, but I think that can be a really big help for our community. You know, I think any opportunity that you're comfortable with that will help you out. Maybe it's a road to explore, but I'm very cautious just because of my own foundation. I go back to my parents and my upbringing and throughout the Marine Corps, like that, that's almost like you said, a, a, a bridge that I'm not willing to cross because it deals with something that might alter me. I'm, I'm almost against taking any prescribed medication that a doctor, I'd rather naturally do things. So I think on that, I can't really comment, but what I, what I can say is for the listeners that are listening, I by no means compare to anybody that was in a special forces or in the infantry where they deployed in the height of having to go really house to house. My experiences just never brought me to that type of environment right i was always on the outside of kind of any kind of conflict and just never really saw days months years on end of just being in a situation where i had to choose do i take this person's life or not so i definitely think that a person that had that experience and had was put into that environment might have different challenges that I can't speak to, right? So I'm not at the point right now where I can kind of support or, or say anything as far as that treatment. It sounds, it sounds interesting, and I hope that if it's something that actually helps in the short term and the long term our veterans, that the right people get a hold of it and start exploring, is this, is this something that we want to uh, look into? And I wish those people the best kind of going down that journey. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a out there concept for sure, especially to guys like us who, you know, we're not drug people and stuff like that. And I would recommend um, one of the podcasts that I listen to is a Navy SEAL, disabled, disabled vet. It's called the Sean Ryan Show. And the last podcast he did with Marcus Capone it's about a four hour podcast, but he explains the process and the treatment and how it's literally, he, he's like, I don't want to call it a miracle, but it's right there. And, um, it's got like an 80 to 90% success rate of curing full blown heroin addicts, alcoholics, they go down, they do the treatment and then they teach them breathing techniques and yoga. And as long as you do the plan, like these people never pick up heroin and, uh, never drink again. And it's just 
apparently they're, they're getting it into Stanford university to be studied. And, um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, from what I've heard and from the people that I've heard that what it's done for them, you know, I think, uh, it's going to be huge because we just had a 20 year war and imagine all the special people and, and infantry guys who are going to be getting out. And, you know, I personally, I'm, I'm tired of getting the phone call. Hey, such and such killed themselves or, Hey, such and such OD'd and died, you know? And, um, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was really bitter and I thought I hated the Marine Corps. And, uh, that looking back on that, I, I, that's one of my regrets, but you know, like you said, I've, I've learned from it and taken a lot away from that, but going to seps and taps and then getting your walking papers and being gone is, is, uh, you know, I think we could do a lot more, um, for the transition of people getting out, what's your take on that? Cause I I've been out for a long time, so I don't know if it's the same process, but basically here's how to write a resume. Here's your papers. See ya. Yeah. So the service, I can only speak to the Marine Corps spends three to six months. When you start talking about boot camp, SOI and your school of getting you in and getting you ready. We spend one week to transition you out. That, that equation doesn't add up to me. But I think that going to TRS more than once, which is the transition seminar, 80% of those people in that class, the, young, the young, younger generation, 22 and older, uh, younger, are on the phones, aren't paying attention, don't care. So if, if we did more, would they absorb it is my question. One. Two, the service is obligated to give us this week-long training. I think where we fall short at, especially as the Marine Corps is, in the Marine Corps, you, you're, everything's done for you. you. You can go out and blow your whole paycheck, and if you live in the barracks, you still have something to eat and somewhere to live. The, the Outside the service, yeah, good luck. If you blow your whole paycheck, you, you're, you're living on the street. And you're starving, right? So I think with TRS, it would be a good conversation to say, hey, this is the bare minimum. Where you're going into a world where the bare minimum, it doesn't cut it. You need to have your own initiative and your own obligation to kind of go out and be better than the bare minimum. So seek out other opportunities, other training environments that help you transition. And they're out there. And you start talking about using the GI Bill, going to college, troops of teachers, troops of truckers, I mean, veterans and piping. Those are all skills that America's losing. And if you get into the, any of those programs at, at a young age, by the time you're in your 40s, you're going to be naming your price at that skill. But that's really on the individual to say, hey, I need to go do this for myself. Because the day you get out of the military, nobody cares, right? No, your, your, your deployments, they're all interesting stories, but your employer doesn't care about that. Your employer does not care about what rank you held. Look, I, I did 27 years. I got out as a sergeant major. You think my employers, that maybe got my foot in the door, but past that, nope. They wanted to know who I was and what I was bringing to the table more than that. And those are all interesting stories that some of them don't even care about when you start talking about deployments. So I think to kind of go back to the TRS question, is it enough? My answer is no, but my answer is it's up to that 
person to seek out other opportunities because that's exactly what they're going to need to do once they get out. Nobody's going to give that to them. They're going to have to go get it, work for it. I agree. I agree. Start winding down here. Um, one, uh, have, have you, what, if any struggles have you dealt with since getting out related to the service? I, I go back to five years before I got out, I start preparing. Right. So I, I have not seen a lot of struggles because for me, it was a trickle effect of getting out instead of all of a sudden, just a fire hose. Now you're out. Now you got all this stuff kind of going on. I didn't feel that because I was prepared. If I would have got out five years before that, I would not have been prepared. Mentally, I would have been identifying to myself as a first sergeant and that billet and thinking that people owed me things and trying to rely on that alone to get a job. So uh, education helped out, get my bachelor's before I got out. That helped out and that was hard, but it helped out. Having the opportunity to go through mental health and kind of understand who I was and understand who Lance was again before I got out helped out. So on this side of things, after being retired, I don't, I don't have a lot of stresses because I was felt like I was pre-prepared. But I was lucky to have got a job right off the bat. So financially, that definitely helps out because I still have two young adults in the home to support that are both in college. So that that's a financial strain. And, and that's not going to go away for the next four, four to seven years. So the, to be out without the income that I had coming in while I was in the Marine Corps, you know, I would be stressed right now if I wouldn't have been proactive to get a job and prepare myself to get a job. And I think that's key. And it kind of goes back to your question of is TRS enough? No, you need to be educated today. You need to, and that don't mean just going to college. If you want to pick up a trade, you know, there's opportunities to do that in or out of the Marine Corps. If you're out already, go do it. That's the best. That's the best thing to kind of get into is any trade right now because America needs it. And that's from truck drivers, to electricians, to plumbers, any of that. They need the workforce needs people to do that. So I think there's opportunities out there, but I haven't felt anything yet. Uh, I'm blessed. And I'm able to talk to uh, young adults in my life and steer them in the right direction. Uh, where I, I think I can kind of help out. And that kind of provides me the opportunity to do the same thing I was doing in the Marine Corps, but really that I haven't been able to do as much for the last five years as a sergeant major because you're removed from that so much. I go back to my company gunny time and say that was the last time I was really with the Marines and with them. And I'm kind of back in that situation now where I can influence people daily. So that, that to me is, it's a great feeling. And it's something that I know that I was put on this earth to do is teach, influence, and just help out people. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, very cool. Very cool to hit the ground running. And um, any uh, closing thoughts here, looking back on 27 years of service and any advice for uh, people still doing it and people that aren't doing it anymore? Yeah, I'll kind of just recap on some of the stuff we talked about. Enjoy today. And- Today might not be the best day in your life, but find something about it and enjoy it. Balance your life out with work and home. Definitely do that. Your family needs your family needs more than 5%. And this is what I mean by that. 
Don't give 95% to your job and go home and give your family five and go to sleep. I did that too long. Give at least 40% to your family and, and give them their attention and, and, and all the effort that you put into your job, give that to your family because that will pay off later. Prepare yourself for whatever you want to do and understand that I understand that people in their first four years on that last year want nothing more but to get out. What does that mean? Like, what are the challenges? Are you prepared for that? And I'm not saying not to do that, but do you have the opportunity and the capability to get out and be successful in whatever line of work you want to go do? If the answer is no, then I would sway you to probably stay in another four years until you, you get there and you're prepared to get out. Because usually first four years, you probably just got married and maybe have a, a child in the house. Now it's not just about you anymore. It's about that family of getting out and kind of going to support them. That's very important. And just going on to that transition, uh, again, being prepared, that's the best thing. And if you're, you're a young adult out there thinking about, is the military for me? You know, we're, we spend a lot of time talking about the Marines today. But I would say you really have the ball in your court if you're in high school. Go out and see what each branch has to offer and see how well you're doing in school and what is that equate to in that branch where they offering you education what kind of job uh, what they allowing you to do and just see the different opportunities because anything that you do to serve your nation they're going to give back to you and support you with financial support with a house that you can live in whether it's the barracks or if you're married and they'll give you a house those are all things that you're not going to find once you get out of high school and kind of move on but the world's not going to give you all that four years and get out at least you have a good foundation, some opportunity for education, and maybe have saved a little bit during that time to figure things out if you don't know what's going on. But yeah, I would say go try each one of them and go see whatever recruiter has to offer, unless college or Votech is the way for you. But that's what my final thoughts would be. Awesome. Well, this was a real pleasure. It was very great to catch up with you and see you, see you, see you doing good. and. You uh, had a lot of impact on a lot of people. It's stuff that we still think about today. So that's got to be a that's got to be a good feeling. And uh, now you're continuing to do that. And but uh, I just I really want to thank you for your time and um, for doing this. Uh, it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. I know a bunch of guys are excited to to listen to this one. So um, thank you. Well, Houston, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm proud of you, man. Doing great things. And you're impacting a lot of people by doing this. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate all your time and effort. I wish nothing but the best for you and your family moving forward. All right, man. Yes, sir. Well, y'all take care and uh, stay in touch. Thank you for tuning in to the Dogs of War.